Welcome to Bioethics on Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. Organ donation can be a sensitive topic. The Catholic Church is generally supportive of donation, but important ethical concerns still need to be addressed, and many people, including some Catholics, disagree with the Church's position. Our guest today, Barry Massa, discusses a number of the ethical issues associated with organ donation. Barry is the Chief Executive Officer of Life Center Organ Donor Network in Cincinnati, Ohio. In this podcast, he explains what an organ procurement organization, or OPO, is, as well as how they ensure that a potential donor is actually deceased before organs are retrieved. He explains how OPOs seek to balance the interests of potential donors and recipients and prevent conflicts of interest. He then describes the process of organ allocation and speaks to challenges associated with donation after circulatory death. Hi, Barry. Welcome to our podcast today. Thanks, Joe. I appreciate it. I was wondering if you could start off telling us a little bit about your background, specifically your education and your work. Sure. So I have my undergrad and my MBA through uh, Xavier University here in Cincinnati. Uh, My background primarily is in finance, and I uh, started actually in banking. And then I moved to a working with a physician group as their CFO. I went to another physician group that had 52 docs, all internal medicine and pediatrics as their CFO. And then during that time, I actually had a friend who had a daughter that needed a heart lung transplant. And she got her transplant when she was two years old in Philadelphia. And a couple years after that is when I saw a position at Life Center for their CFO. Um, That was through the Department of Surgery here at University of Cincinnati. And Mm -hmm. I called my friend up and said, I didn't even know this place existed. Um, You know, obviously I love the mission. And he said, Barry, you should apply. That's what they need. So I applied. I became the CFO in February of 2004. And then in June of 2008, I became the executive director. So I've been the executive director here at Life Center for a little bit more than 10 years. Great. Wonderful. So I was wondering if we could start off uh, with you giving giving our audience an explanation of what is an organ procurement organization or an OPO? What does it do? Sure. So an organ procurement organization or an OPO is a federally designated organization that facilitates all organ and tissue donation. So there are 58 OPOs in the United States. Each of us has a predetermined territory governed by Medicare, and all of us are nonprofits. And what our primary role is is to facilitate all organ and tissue donation, as well as to educate our community on registering to become an organ donor. Briefly, can you tell us what's the process for procuring organs and tissue? In other words, what happens? Sure. So all hospitals that fall in the predetermined territory of each OPO are required by Medicare to call us anytime there's a death in the hospital or anytime a patient comes in that is on a ventilator. So for the ventilated patients that also meet other clinical criteria, 
those patients have the potential to become organ donors. So when there is a potential organ donor, that hospital is going to call us as the OPO. Our call center will take the call and then inform a member of our organ recovery team. And typically, that person will then gather more information by accessing that hospital's electronic medical record system. Um, should the patient then progress to brain death, the organ recovery person will actually go on site. And once the person is pronounced, then somebody from Life Center or one of the OPOs will be talking to the family about the possibility for donation. And then once the family authorizes for donation, a whole another set of uh, staff comes in from the OPO that will actually stabilize and evaluate and allocate the organs for transplantation. So once the recipients are determined um, who's going to get those organs, it usually takes about a 24 to 48 hour process before the, the organs are allocated. And then once that's done, once they're allocated or who the recipients are and have been identified, then they go to the operating room for the actual organ recovery. And then those organs are then transported to whatever uh, transplant center the recipients will be getting their life-saving gift. Uh, on the other hand, uh, tissue donation, as I mentioned, all the, the hospitals are required to call us for all deaths. So those who have the potential for tissue donation and a member of our call center will obtain the family information from the hospital. And if they meet the criteria for tissue donation, then an OPO call center member will contact the family via phone to discuss the potential for tissue donation. And again, if authorized by the family, then representatives of the tissue recovery team will either go to the hospital or in Life Center's case, we actually transport the patient from the hospital to Life Center and then transport their loved one to whatever funeral home they're going to. So what, what tissues can you recover from? So typically it's uh, bones, um, tendons for a lot of orthopedic procedures, and then skin for burn victims. Are the procedures that you follow with Life Center in Cincinnati, are they uniform across the country, or is there, do OPOs have latitude in terms of the procedures that they follow? To the very most extent, they're all uniform. Um, we all have our own little niche, if you will, our own little um, process that we do in terms of if it's a certain organ, say lungs. We work with respiratory therapists as well as um, lung transplant surgeons to say what is the best way to maintain those organs during the evaluation process um, that would be best for that lung to be transplanted. So each of us has little nuances like that, um, but for the most part, everything is pretty much standardized. All right, so let's go into sort of the, the, the heart of the matter in terms of some of the ethical issues surrounding organ and tissue donation. How does Life Center, or really any OPO, how do you make sure that a patient is actually dead before procuring vital organs? So Life Center, or all OPOs, do not actually pronounce patients as being brain dead. Mm -hmm. So this process is performed by physicians within the hospital according to that state law or hospital policy. 
Um, that said, we do look at to make sure that certain criteria are being met. For instance, the person cannot be on any form of sedation when the person is doing the brain death testing. Mm -hmm. Or something as even as small as sodium levels are monitored to ensure that brain death testing is done within the certain parameters of a sodium level. So we make sure that we confirm that when the hospital is doing this brain death testing, that the physician is actually following the hospital policy and the state law. Mm -hmm. So we as an OPO are actually verifying that they're doing it according to their own policy and the state law. And while the state law may vary upon state, some require one exam and some require two, but for typically for all children, it's a two brain death uh, policy, usually done 12 hours apart. Mm -hmm. So we make sure that all those steps are being followed to the T. All right. Some people will claim, uh, and I've heard and, and read uh, some of these arguments, but some people will claim that the whole brain death criteria is not sufficient and that, in fact, some, some patients may not actually be dead and, and oftentimes people will refer to the Jahai McMath case. So I was wondering if you could tell us, uh, explain to us, first of all, what is the whole brain death criterion for determining death? And how do you respond to the claim that this criterion may not be, um, may not be adequate? Well, uh, obviously I was not part of the Jahai McMath case, so I can't speak to that one in particular, but I can tell you that the American Academy of Neurology publishes guidelines for determining brain death and they have a step-by-step -step process. And I would say hospitals have adopted those guidelines into their policy, and a lot of it is um, also within the state law, or whatever state they may be in. Mm -hmm. So assuming that they are followed completely, there really isn't any room for doubt. Um, last year, there were over 10,000 donors in the United States. There were roughly 2,500 to 3,000 additional brain death exams that did not result in donation. And all of those occurred without an incident. So as I mentioned, Life Center, we confirmed the brain death testing step-by-step step is done according to the policy and according to those guidelines established by the American Academy of Neurology. Really, if you follow those, there really shouldn't be any doubt whatsoever. OPOs, Life Center, you don't declare death. And I was wondering if you could talk, tell our audience a little bit more about the reasons why that is. Sure. So um, the reason we don't do it or any OPO does it is because of the conflict of interest. Right. So if you think about it, um, and one of the reasons that it's somebody from an OPO staff talking to the family about the possibility of donation and not a hospital staff person talking to that family is again because of that conflict of interest. You don't, the hospital's main job is to treat that person so they can remain alive. You know, they came in with a tragic and traumatic injury of some port some type, right? So whether it's a car accident or a motor vehicle accident or um, even heroin overdose or a drug overdose or heart attack or whatever the is issue is, it's a traumatic injury. 
and they're trying to keep that person alive. You don't want somebody from the hospital then saying, we did everything we possibly could to keep your loved one alive, but they have the possibility to become an organ donor. Right. Most people are going to think, did you really try hard enough to keep my person, to keep my loved one alive, or do you just want them for their organs, mm -hmm. right? Which is why we hear that separation. The same thing happens on why OPOs do not declare death, because again, we as an OPO are advocating for not only the donor, but the recipients waiting for that life-saving gift. So it would be a conflict of interest of, for us to proclaim brain death, because it would be looked upon as, you just want the organs from my loved one, you're not really looking to save their life. How does Life Center or how do OPOs balance the best interests of the patient who is a potential donor with the best interests of a, of a potential recipient? Yes, yeah, so that's a great question. Um, the best interest for all parties is really to honor the person's wish as a designated donor or ensuring that the hospital preserves the option for donor families and we accurately and expeditiously allocate the organs to the potential recipients. All of us involved in this process, whether it's the OPO or the donor hospital or the transplant center or the transplant surgeons, we all have a duty to keep the safety of the recipient of the organ transplant in mind when we are pursuing the potential for organ donation. So even though only 1% of the deaths are even eligible for organ donation, even with so many few opportunities, the utmost importance is the safety of the recipients. And honestly, there are times when a family wants to donate, but due to many factors, whether it's the potential donor's medical history or the health of the organs that could be transplanted, or the family wants to withdraw care before they actually reach brain death, that we do not pursue for donation even though the family wants it to happen, we don't pursue it because it will be impacting the safety of the recipient or what is not best for the donor. Can you give examples? I find that interesting. How would, how, how do uh, situations with the potential donor, how does that affect safety of the, of the potential recipient? So again, uh, if you have a recipient that, for instance, is hepatitis C. You want to make sure that that is known before you transplant an organ that has hepatitis C or if they had West Nile virus or, you know, name any kind of virus or something that you can transplant into an individual that would be harmful to them. You don't, you don't want that to happen. Actually, I've heard, and maybe you could talk a little bit more about this. Are there moves, you mentioned hepatitis C, are there movements to allow donation if the potential recipient is aware that the that the donor is you know has hepatitis C that they um, that they could still uh, consent to that donation yeah actually so there are two transplant centers doing it currently in the United States John Hopkins and the University of Pittsburgh um, there are some hospitals looking at this University of Cincinnati being one that um, they're taking organs from a donor that is hepatitis C positive and transplanting them into a recipient that is non-hepatitis C positive 
and then treating the hepatitis post-transplant because there is the drug now that could cure hepatitis C. But that is a very recipient-driven process. The recipient can make that decision on whether or not they will accept that organ that has the hepatitis C and treat the hepatitis. This is not just something the hospital does. The recipient actually has to agree to that. Are there any uh, studies about how, uh, or the, the long-term health and safety of recipients who have received those? Well, you know, it's real early in the process for any long-term, but I could tell you that, that the short-term outcomes has been very good. So I think, I think once you see more of those outcomes being published, I think there's going to be more and more transplant centers hopping on that bus. Um, I'd like to change gears a little bit and, and talk about um, well, the recipients. Um, so potential vital organ recipients die every day waiting for organs. We know that. How is it determined what potential recipient will receive an available organ? Yeah, so the federal government actually is involved, which may or may not comfort people, but <laughs> the Health and Human Services Division of the federal government actually oversees the Organ Procurement and Transplantation Network, or OPTN. And then there's another organization called UNOS, the United Network of Organ Sharing, that actually facilitates that Organ Procurement and Transplantation Network contract with the federal government. So UNOS is the, is the entity that governs the list. So anytime a patient that is seen by a physician who recommends that an organ transplant is needed for their disease or illness or whatever issue that they have, that patient is evaluated by the transplant hospital and by the surgeon. The hospital or the surgeon notifies UNOS, and then UNOS actually ranks that person based upon the severity of illness. Mm -hmm. So if you're on the top of the list at UNOS, that means you're have the most severe case or the most likely to die um, or the soonest to die based upon your illness. And that's then how organs are allocated. So when we have a potential donor, whether it's at Life Center or NEOPO, we get the information, obviously blood type is a big one, size, uh, those kind of things. We, we communicate that to UNOS and then UNOS runs the list and matches them with the best recipient. And that's how that's determined. What about uh, time from donation to, to transplant? So for example, you're in Cincinnati. Let's say you have a heart comes available and the person on the top of the list is in Seattle. Are there any uh, considerations for, well, you know, it's going to take X amount of time to, you know, to procure the organ, get it to Seattle, and you know, and, and and implant it into the patient. Is there any that you know? Could the line be jumped, so to speak, uh, in terms of other factors, geographic and other? Yeah, so the how organ allocation works currently, and actually, there's been a lot of um, discussion within the Health and Human Services Division that kind of changed the policy. But how it is currently is people within your donation service area or our defined territories kind of have preferential treatment because what studies from many, many years have proven is 
the longer the organ is outside the body or the longer the transportation time from donor to recipient, the lower the outcome or the worse the outcome of the recipient. So for us in Cincinnati, we cannot fly a heart to Seattle. We could pretty much do about a 600-mile radius from Cincinnati. The furthest that we've ever transplanted a heart is in New York. So kidneys are a whole different story because there's a kidney pump that you could actually keep them on a pump that is a mobile device. Um, it's about the size of a small microwave, um, and they could be transported anywhere in the United States. Much go anywhere, and there's actually um, equipment being manufactured now and tested for liver and lungs to do the same kind of thing. So it's coming, and I think at some time there will be a portable machine that will be working for every organ, but it's not there yet. So what I'm hearing then is if you're on the top of the list. Um, you're really, it's, 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 you're on the top of the list in a geographic area in essence. Correct? Yeah, pretty much, especially in a region. Yes. But if, like I said, if, if, uh, that person, number one in the United States list is in Seattle and I'm in Cincinnati, um, if it's for a heart, that's not going to work. We're going to look at a, a more regional area that we can, who is on the top of the list. A little while ago, you were talking about uh, conflict of interest, and we were talking about determining death. There are those who will argue that there's also an inherent conflict of interest associated with organ donation because, well, OPOs get paid when organ and donor, uh, excuse me, when organ and tissue donations occur, and they don't get paid if they don't occur. How would you respond to that challenge? Like I mentioned at the very beginning, all OPOs are nonprofits, so. Our mission is not to make a gazillion dollars for shareholders or anybody like that. We don't have shareholders, right? So while we do have to maintain an economically feasible organization, the mission is not to make as much money as possible. It's to save as many lives as possible. So if anything, I say we were guilty of overly allocating or advocating for those people on the wait list to save their life. Um, do we want donation to occur? Absolutely. Um, however, it's not because of the financial reimbursement part of it, but for the life-saving mission part of it. And actually, um, all OPOs are governed by Medicare. One of the things that Medicare does is we have to do, all OPOs have to do an annual cost report to Medicare and based upon kidneys, because kidneys is the biggest volume of organs transplanted, and, in the, and for the number of people on the wait list. So we do this annual cost report, and if the reimbursement for kidneys is above the cost for kidneys, then we have to pay that money back to Medicare. Conversely, if the expense that we had to transplant kidneys is greater than the reimbursement received, we Medicare pays us the difference. So it really is a break even when it comes to kidney donation. And that's, again, it's not for the, we're not doing this for the money aspect of it because if we do a lot of kidney donations, it, the money's just going to go back to Medicare. Up to this point, we've been 
talking about organ donation, uh, particularly vital organ donation, um, when a patient is whole brain dead. But there's now a, I don't want to say a new process, but kind of going, uh, another process that's kind of coming back, which is uh, known as donation after circulatory death, or DCD. So I was wondering if you could tell us how is the DCD process different from a, a whole brain death donation, and are there any challenges that have been posed by the DCD mm -hmm. process? Yeah, so DCD stands for donation after circulatory death, which is when families decide to withdraw life-sustaining therapies prior to the declaration of brain death. Mm -hmm. So in these type of situations, a family can authorize for donation, but these potential donors, they receive the same end-of-life care from the medical staff, just like any other patient, but the only difference is that the withdrawal scenario is in a much more controlled environment so that the donor can be taken to organ recovery within minutes after passing away. So when these kind of DCD donations occur, um, the person must pass away within 60 minutes from extubation or withdrawal of support. And for some organs, that person must pass away within 20 minutes, just because otherwise those organs would not be viable for transplantation. Again, going back to the whole safety for the recipient. There is a brief period once the person passes away, but no more than five minutes, that the potential donor is actually verified to have passed away by a physician that is not involved in the transplantation of the organs. So it's a completely different person within the hospital, or physician I should say, that is the one verifying death other than somebody involved in the transplant team. And typically on any one year, these kind of donors are 10 to 15% of all the donors in the United States. I was gonna ask, uh, how many uh, have, have if Life Center had DCD versus whole brain death? Yeah, so we, we are right around 10% pretty much every year. And, you know, so there are a lot of times, um, and even within the state of Ohio, it's around 40% of the time that a family authorizes for donation through DCD donation, and they do not pass within the 40 or the 60 minute time frame. So, while the family wants to donate and we want the donation to occur, if they don't pass away within that 60 minute time frame, then no organs are transplanted. How are, um, do, does Life Center staff or people you work with, do they feel any difference between a whole brain death donation versus a DCD donation? Yeah, I mean, um, again, you're, you're there at the time of withdrawal support. And, that's a, that's something very difficult to watch and be, you know, because you're seeing that person's last breath, right? right. Where with brain death, uh, you may or may not be seeing that. And chances are you're, you're probably, you're doing the brain death exam after that has already occurred. So you're not really part of that. So with DCD, it's a little bit different and it does get, um, it's, it's a lot more emotional. Yeah, I could see that. Um, I'm wondering if, uh, and I'm just kind of, as you're speaking, I'm wondering um, what kind of support OPOs offer to their staff members who are, you know, who are dealing with this on a, uh, it could be on a yeah, daily so, basis. You know, 
A couple, you know, we actually started thinking about that a few years ago. So now after um, every DCD donor and every pediatric donor, whether brain death or DCD, we um, do a little, uh, I don't know what the right word is, self-care. Um, and you have a therapist come in and just kind of talk through the situation and make sure everybody's in a good place. Because yeah, in these situations, we're—I mean, and rightfully so—we're, we're, we're, you know, thinking about the family, and you know, thoughts and, and prayers are with the family of of the person who's going to be a donor, and we don't always think about, you know, the, you know, the well, the healthcare professionals from the hospitals who are taking care of those patients, and then the OPO um, professionals as well too, and and they're, you know, they're affected by this as well. You're absolutely right, and like I said, a few years ago, we really started thinking about the self care of our staff. And really looking at, okay, how are they impacted by this? Because on the donation side, we see, and we are talking about the, we're talking to families during their worst moment a lot. So we see that side, but thankfully we see the recipient side too. Mm -hmm. So um, at least most of the time, you know, we know that somebody's life is going to be saved because of this gift. So we do see the good in it, but sometimes not everybody is only dealing with one aspect of it, and that is talking to the families. And that's what they're doing all day long, you know, for their time on the job. So it really does make it difficult. And so we really try to do a lot of things for from a self-care standpoint as well as, okay, now let's look at make sure we have the whole picture given to everybody on because of the things that you did talk to the family, these people over here's lives were saved. That raises another question for me is, uh, is it possible for, or how possible is it for the families of a donor to meet the person or persons to whom their loved one's organs went to? Yeah, so that's one of the things that OPOs also facilitate is the, is the communication between the donor family and the donor and the donor recipients or the transplant recipients. So we are the middlemen, if you will. So we are the facilitators of that. So if either a donor family member or a recipient wants to know who the other is, they have to write into their local organ procurement organization. We would contact the other party. And if the other party is willing to do it, then we'll arrange the meeting. But Hmm. both parties have to verify that they are willing to do it because everybody agrees differently. Right. And some people may not want to know and some people may want to know. Um, So if one party doesn't want to do it or is not ready to do it, then that does not occur. Those must be very, very interesting meetings when they happen though. Oh, it's, it's the most emotional thing you'll see. I can imagine. Actually, I can't imagine. But anyway. All right. Up to this point, we've been talking about organ donation. I'd like to switch gears once again a little bit, talk a bit about tissue donation. You, you explained what that was a little earlier, but what are some of the, the ethical and other challenges that arise with tissue donation? Well, with tissue donation, um, I would say the biggest issues ethically that have occurred um, within the tissue donation field really derives from recovery entities that are not 
certified recovery facilities like an OPO mm-hmm. in which the person's recovering or doing this within industry guidelines and within the regulations. Uh, I would say probably like 10 years ago, there was a funeral home okay. um, in North Carolina, I believe, that was recovering tissue without getting the authorization from the family, but recovering tissue and then uh, falsifying documents that they got authorization and then sending it on to uh, tissue processors. Whenever you have somebody like a and I'm not bashing the funeral home industry, please make that very clear. But what I am saying is there, there's organizations like an OPO or certified tissue recovery facilities that are certified and follow federally designated regulations for tissue recovery, mm-hmm. such as getting the proper authorization from the family making sure you have all the correct information and testing done to make sure that it's safe so forth. Um, it, when it's not done by those type of people um, or like peop- like OPOs, that's where the ethical issues have come in. Have you dealt with any of those situations at all? Personally, no, um, and nor have we. So again, you know, in the greater Cincinnati area, we do all the recoveries for all the hospital deaths. Um, and all of us that do tissue recovery are governed by the American Association of Tissue Banks, as well as the FDA. Once again, a, federal, a branch of the federal government is involved. Right. But um, we are audited every other year by the FDA. Um, we are audited every other year by the American Association of Tissue Banks. So mm-hmm. it's a pretty strenuous process that we go through to make sure that we are certified and doing the right things. Um, when recovery facilities are not doing that, that's a whole another issue. How would you respond to someone who is hesitant about being an organ or a tissue donor? I would just tell them to seek education on both organ and tissue donation and really either go to a local organ procurement organization or their healthcare professional or a reputable website such as Health and Human Services or the United Network of Organ Sharing or Donate Life America or the Association of Organ Procurement Organizations or something like that. You know, there's several myths out there regarding donation such as I'm too old or my religion doesn't support donation Mm-hmm. Or the biggest myth, which is the hospital won't save my life if I'm a registered mm-hmm. organ donor that's on my license. I would really tell people to really seek information about those things. So for instance, it's really not the, about the age of the donor as much as it is the health of the donor. Um, so re- if you have a question about it, ask your healthcare professional. If you have a question about your religion supports it, Ask your religious leader, because all major religions support donation. And if you have a myth or misconception, seek information and really look at the information, then make your decision whether or not you want to become an organ or tissue donor. Um, I'm not going to tell you which way you should do it, but at least get the information to make up your mind. Any final words of wisdom you'd like to leave us with? 
for us as organ procurement organizations, we want to do what is best for both the donor family as well as the recipient. And then we also want to work nice in the, you know, play nice in the sandbox with our transplant surgeons in our transplant centers and the hospitals that these donors are from, the coroner if they're involved, the funeral homes. There's a lot of people that are involved in this whole process. And we all try to work together to make this happen because ultimately what we want is what is best for the donor and their family. Um, and that's really what guides all of our decisions. Barry Massa, thank you for your time today. It's greatly appreciated. Joe, thanks very much for having me. I appreciate it. For more information on this topic and other bioethical issues, visit our website, ncbcenter.org, and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. If you enjoy these podcasts and would like to support them and the National Catholic Bioethics Center, please click the Donate button on our website. I'm your host, Joe Zalot. Thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you next time.